Welcome to the Compass Church Podcast with Pastor Tim Jacobs, a ministry of Compass Church with your Arizona. Join us now as we look into God's Word to be challenged and changed. If you have a Bible, turn to James chapter 4, verse 1. We are going to dive right in because we got a lot to talk about today and I'm fired up. So I'm going to dive right into it. Now, if you're, if you're new, I'm just going to tell you, James, who's writing a letter to the, to, to the early church, to kind of beginner Christians, okay? Um, he's, he's kind of got them warmed up in the first few chapters. We're catching it right in the middle. If you ever wrote a letter where you kind of start off and you're kind of just getting things started and then you get in the middle and you're like, bam, like this is where we are. So if it kind of hits you like the one-two punch, um, it's supposed to. So this is what he's going to say. James chapter four, verse one. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So he's asking this question, what causes these fights? Why do we fight with each other? Why do we have conflict? Is it simply because, you know, you don't have enough interpersonal communication training? You're not practicing enough active listening? You know, there's like cultural differences, whatever else. And while some of those things might play into why we misunderstand each other, James right out of the gate is going to say the reason that you and I have so many conflicts with especially those with whom we're supposed to love the most and be around the most and share our lives with the most is because of the war going on inside. And so it says, when he says passions, what that really means is pleasures or delights, things that you love. And so there's all these things that you love that you're going for that are competing for first place in your life, in your hearts. Now, they aren't all bad per se. You know, for example, you, you could say, I have a desire to please God. But then there's all these other desires that, that fit in. So when he talks about desires... These aren't just like, oh, I'd like to do this someday. These are strong, all-encompassing drives, almost like basically lust, except it doesn't even have to be sexual. It's like this, I have to have this now. And so, you know, it can be anything from just like even like physical needs to like, I want to be recognized. I want to have attention. I want you to love me. I want to have power. I want to have security. I want to be recognized. Whatever the case may be, there are all these competing things that are fighting inside our souls. And James is saying it spills out into the three-dimensional world and characterizes the way that we treat other people, and it ruins our relationships. In fact, with technology now, they can not only are able to look really in-depth at your biological heart, but there's new technology that has just come out that can actually look at your immaterial, that can actually look at what's going on inside your soul. Isn't that crazy? So if you want to know what the average person's soul looks like on any given day, they can, they can show that now through images. In fact, we have some video of that. Show, show that right now. Let's see this. Chaos! Personal, it's become. Oh, Roman 
WrestleMania. Yeah, preserve the main event. Because Roman Reigns will get all he wants this Sunday of the 14-time world champion, the game. Oh, Triple H still trying to, to make his way back into the ring. Oh, wait, wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Go on, Roman Reigns. Watch it himself on the top rope. Take it out of sea of superstars. Triple H crawling away. The champion crawling away. Champion isn't crawling away. That's a strategic retreat. That's the best line of the whole video. That's a strategic retreat. He's not crawling away. But yeah, that is what James is saying is going on inside you and me on any given day. Each one of those superstars represents another passion, another drive, another desire, and there's complete chaos in the ring, and no one is in control. It's totally unmanageable. And so with that going on, of course there would be chaos in our relationships, fighting with our spouses, with our friends, with our kids. Yeah, lust and pride and greed and arrogance. And like James goes on and says, you covet, but you can't obtain. And that word covet actually means intense, negative feelings over another's achievements or success. Yeah, you ever had that? In case you want to experience intense negative feelings over another's achievements or success, just go spend five minutes on social media, right? Yeah, and all of a sudden you're like, yeah, look at their life is better than mine, even though we know it's like fake. But the reality is that's where we are. And so if you could summarize this into one sentence, what he's trying to say out of the gate is this. My outer problem with people is really an inner problem. It's not the people, it's not the circumstances, it's not the culture, it's not politics. The outer problem and fighting and quarreling, whatever that I have with other people around me, some of whom are the closest people to me, is really an inner problem. My outer conflicts are a result of inner conflicts. And he goes on to say, you know, you don't have because you don't ask God. In other words, when was the last time, you know, you have all this chaos going on, a typical day, and you're like, when do you stop and go, wait a second, God, I need your help here. And then he says, when you do ask, you ask with wrong motives. And he's really coming out swinging hard, and he's kind of amped. You know, the first part of the book, he was kind of mellow, and now he's getting more and more worked up as he's going along writing this. But he's trying to make the point that even when we ask God for stuff, there's so much conflict going on inside that even our motives aren't right. So I don't know if you can relate to this, but it feels like this a lot in my own heart. You know, there's like stuff that's like raging inside and I go, I I don't know what to do. You know, you feel these different emotions and then again, it's so easy to let it just spill out. And you wonder why we have the problems that we do. So how do we begin to solve this inner problem? How do we begin to deal with the battle that rages inside? And, And some of us, you know, we've destroyed a lot of relationships. You've left this like, trail of a a path and wake of misery and destruction because you just can't seem to get what's going on here under control. Well, he takes an interesting turn here if we continue to walk through it. He kind of presents a different metaphor, different imagery. If you look at verse four, he says this. He says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? 
Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace? So if we could boil that down, part of what he's saying is not only is our outer problem really an inner problem, but our inner problem is actually a God problem. It's actually a God problem. The way our relationship with God, that is what lies at the core of what is causing 99% of the problems and misery in our lives. So if you're fighting with people, if you've got, you know, WrestleMania going on inside your heart, and there's some, there's, that means there's something, it's like a light on the dashboard, there's something fundamentally wrong with our understanding and relationship to God at that point. So what exactly is that? How do we drill down and understand what we mean by that? Well, he, if you notice this language he uses, he talks about adulterous people and he talks about jealousy and this kind of thing. What's he getting at? Well, let me explain it to you this way. I'm very pleased actually to announce to you that this week and among our worship team, we had an engagement. Two members of our worship team got engaged. Nicola Ligden and Maddie Brannick. Isn't that cool? We can clap for that. It's very exciting. And they're very young. They, by the way, they weren't on the stage. Those of you going like, uh, which ones were they? They weren't on the stage. Some of you are like, that's weird. They're all married. No, but, uh, but they're not. But, uh, but they're, they're, so don't try to guess who it is because they weren't on stage today. But Nick is one of our drummers. So, you know, if the drums are too loud, it's probably him. And, um, and Maddie is one of our vocalists. And they've been on the worship team for a while. And they're both like super young, you know, like 21, 19, whatever. And we just tend to do that around here. And we're not trying to start a cult or anything. But it's kind of fun because our high school ministry just produces these really attractive people, not just outwardly, but inwardly. And, and they do a fantastic job. And we've gotten so many young couples hitched at this church. It's crazy. And then they get married and they like start popping out kids. And it's like, it's really a great church growth strategy for us, actually. <laughs> so we, we encourage it. No, but it's, it's a really awesome story. And, and, but here's what happens, though. But now that Nick and, and Maddie are, are engaged, they are in a period in their lives where they are adjusting to a life of exclusivity. In other words, it's different than when you're not engaged, you know? So we would place a very high value on engagement and marriage around here. So, you know, because if you're not engaged and you're just dating, I mean, hey, that's, that's fine and all, but as far as I'm concerned, you know, like I told my kids, I say, look, if there ain't no ring, it ain't no thing. That's my little saying. If there ain't no ring, ain't no thing, right? That's what you like. You shouldn't lie and say, hey, I'm, you know, and like see other people on the side when you're not. But if you're dating and all you are is dating and you get to the point where you're like, eh, I'm not sure about this person, you can cut them loose and just go try dating someone else. There's really, there's no harm in that because you haven't made a lifelong commitment to that person and you haven't declared an intention to, to move that direction yet. That's what the engagement symbolizes, right? So if there ain't no ring, it ain't no thing, right? I mean, you might be growing in that direction, but there's really no actual, so, but that's why engagement and marriage is so important because the minute that ring comes on, and this is why people, when they say, well, you know, we're in a committed relationship, I don't even know what you mean by that because if you're in a committed relationship, then you would be married. I mean, I, I don't know how else you, you understand those things, but maybe I'm just a simple guy. But in any case, once you get engaged, you begin to orient yourself around that exclusivity of that relationship. You're adjusting to a life of total commitment to that other person. And so it changes your behavior and priorities, right? The things that, this is why marriage, by the way, is so important. 
Because if you just simply live together forever, there, you don't have the mechanism to think about the long term. You're only thinking about the short term because there's this, well, you know, I mean, we're together for now and we're not, we're not burdening ourselves with this, with this big commitment. But the, what you lose is you lose that perspective that gives you the trajectory to make decisions that actually benefit you in the long term. Marriage causes you to think about, well, where are we going to live and how are we going to do this and what, what do we believe and how are we going to raise our kids and all these things that you don't have when you just say, ah, you know, let's take it day by day. But in any case, so James is adopting this, this metaphor in the same way, because he's saying, you adulterous people. So in other words, you, by, by saying on the one hand, hey, when it comes to God, yeah, I'm, we're, we're connected. You know, we, we have this relationship. I, I believe in God, and I'm, I'm trying to live for him. But then you're kind of over here living your life following other loves. Your heart is somewhere else. He's like, that's like adultery. And really what he's doing is he's adopting language right out of the Old Testament, because the Old Testament talks a lot about that. And so, for example, when in, look at, if you look in verse 5, he says, Do you not suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he is made to dwell in us. Now, if you look at that, you might say, well, what does he mean? First of all, when you read the guys that kind of study this stuff and they go, well, we don't really know the verse that James is talking about. We can't find any verse in the Old Testament that specifically says that. However, what James is doing is summarizing a huge theme of the Old Testament, which is Israel belongs to God and it's like a marriage relationship. In fact, even our own marriages are to kind of picture and symbolize God's commitment to us. So that's why it's so important. That's one of the reasons why we want to stay faithful in our marriages, not just merely because it's the right thing to do or it's what, you know, fulfilling a promise, but it's a picture to other people of God's commitment to us. So it's a big deal, right? But so the same, this is the same language and the same idea is being used here. But what he says here is kind of concerning because he says that God is a jealous God, basically. I mean, what in the world is that about? Because you might say, well, Tim, isn't jealousy bad? Right? I mean, you're not supposed to be jealous. I mean, we just talked about coveting other people and like having what they have or wanting what they have. Isn't that, like, aren't we not supposed to do that? Why is God being a jealous God a good thing? Well, we have to understand that jealousy in and of itself isn't a wrong emotion if, in fact, it comes from losing what is rightfully yours. In other words, if you're like in high school, you know, and the girl you like is talking to another guy and you get jealous, guys— you know, or flip it for girls. If the guy is, you, you like is talking to, you know, another girl, you like, you might get jealous, but that's really your problem because you don't have a claim on that other person. You know, so we try to teach our high school ministry. We, we want to kind of like, you know, psycho-proof our young people, right? Because you don't want to turn into some crazy stalker who, who goes around. That's really what a stalker is, right? It's like someone who, who, you know, you belong to me, but they really don't. And you do go to all these crazy extremes of hyper-controlling. And so we tend to associate that with negativity. But in the case of a marriage relationship, if your spouse is cheating, you have every right to be jealous. In fact, it would be weird for the cheating spouse to say, why are you jealous that I'm seeing this person? It's like, because you're not supposed to do that. And so no spouse, even a cheating spouse, wouldn't think, well, you know, they have a right to be jealous. So this is the kind of thing. So, so, so James is saying, listen, you as a Christian, as a follower, you rightfully belong to him. 
you rightfully belong to God. He does have a claim on us. He is the rightful owner of our hearts and should be the center of our attention. So when we live with one eye on God and one eye on everything else that the world has to offer that's in opposition to him, it bothers him. Now that's really weird, but that's what he's saying. Like, Again, the verse says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. So he's like, hey, you belong to me. And that should kind of blow you away when you think about it, that here is the God of the universe who doesn't need anything. And he doesn't. And he knows about the galaxies that our telescopes haven't even discovered yet. He knows the edges of the universe. He keeps, and then on the, on the micro level, he knows, he keeps track of all the atoms and molecules and all the combinations. He just knows all the stuff. And he, he knows, like, every hair of your head is numbered, like Jesus says, right? Everybody on the planet, like billions of people, he has all this amazing detail and access right, right there at his fingertips, right there in his brain. And yet he cares about you, little you, and how you feel about him on a Thursday? Yeah. That should kind of blow your mind a little bit. That this is exactly what James is saying. Now, God created us to love us. He created us for him, by the way. It's a big paradigm shifter for a lot of us. Because we think, well, God created us for us. God created us so we could go and get cool stuff from him when we believe in him. And it's like, no, that's not really it. God created us to love us, not because he needed us. Like, God's never been lonely. People go, well, you know, God, he made us because, you know, he's lonely. He needed someone to, no, no, no. God's never been lonely in his life. Like, in all eternity, he's never been lonely because he's always been in relationship with himself, his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's why we affirm the Trinity. It's very important. Like, God, God doesn't have any needs. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. But he creates us to love us and that we would love him. Again, not that he needs our love. But here's the kicker. When we love him, we are living our most fulfilled lives. We are experiencing a pleasure and a joy that brings him joy to see us living in. But when you don't love him, or you turn away from him, or you're chasing things other than him, you and I begin to degrade. We begin to live less than we are capable of. We begin to lose our humanity. We begin to lose our purpose. We lose the very reason that we are here. And it bothers him. This is very important. And I'll tell you why. And this, I'm going to put this on the screen because I thought it was a really important point. We need to understand that the Christian life is not about acting moral. The Christian life is about loving God. Okay? Very important. Most people think that what, what we're really after here at Compass Church or any church, what, we're, what God is really after is a type of behavior that is within a certain boundaries. That really, you, the goal of Christianity is that you be good. That's not our goal. That's not his goal. The goal of Christianity is not about acting moral. It's about loving God. This is very, very important because the problem with James, if you read James enough, you, he's so focused on behavior and behavior is really important that you, you miss 
If you're not careful, we can make a lot of wonderful sermons as we're going through the book of James. They just talk about, you know, here's how we can become more disciplined. Here's how we can, you know, not be so angry. We can control our tongues like we talked about. And so we basically become better people to be around. And that's great, but that's not the ultimate goal. The ultimate goal is the glorification of God. The ultimate goal is that we would be captivated by the love and the beauty and the amazement of God. And so again, if you think about it, those of you who are married... Do you want your husband or wife to be faithful to you out of a sense of duty or because they actually, like out of the desire of their heart, want to spend their lives pursuing you and getting to know you more? Which would you rather have? Well, I don't want to be unfaithful because, you know, I want to do my good duty as a spouse. You want that or do you want, no, why would I ever be interested in in loving someone else? I have this person. I just want to spend the rest of my time focused on them. Of course you would want that. Where do you think that desire came from? Did it just pop out of the ground somewhere? No, God put it in you because he himself possesses it and it is part of being made in his image. God wants to be known. And so he created beings that find amazing fulfillment in knowing him. But what is it about God that makes us want to pursue him anyway? And this is really important Because, you see, if you just think that God wants you to be good and moral, you may follow him, you may respect him, you may be even almost like a little bit in awe of him, like, wow, man, when I when I do these things, like when I when I, you know, stay faithful to my spouse and when I, you know, control my anger and when I get up early and, you know, do the things I'm supposed to do and color inside the lines, life tends to work well with me. And and God told me to do that. And when you live like that, then you might go, wow, I, I really see that God's right. And that's wonderful. And you might respect God, but you won't love him. You won't love him. In fact, I heard a guy say, talking about this, who, who's not a believer, but he believes in God. He's not a Christian, but he believes in God. And he says, he was a guy on the radio, and he says, yeah, I understand that we're honor God, but I don't understand the concept of loving God. I don't see why that's so important. And he's a brilliant guy. Well, the answer to that is simple, why he does it, because in his conception of God or his understanding of God, there isn't grace fundamentally. See, and a lot of people, uh, my son and I were talking about this, a lot of people approach God, and he, and he, he kind of pointed this out, he said, people will say, um, people kind of approach God like, I'm deserving, but if I don't do what I'm supposed to do, I'll get rejected. And so it's very much like an attitude of entitlement. Well, God, I'm, I mean, I'm, I haven't killed anybody, so I deserve to go to heaven. But if you reject me because I didn't do this, 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 I mean, how dare you do that? That's, a, that's the attitude of a lot of people. That's why they don't like religion, because it's like, well, God, I'm deserving, obviously. I mean, look at me. But you would reject me because I don't follow you exactly the way, you, and they get very offended. But it's actually the opposite. We're actually undeserving, but accepted anyway. God loved us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us while we were at our worst. When you really begin to dive into that, you really begin to understand that like I have no claim to want to 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 all be accepted by God for anything. God did not have to send his son to die for me. God did not have to take my sin upon his shoulders to be just or anything like that. God God's justice would be enough and I'd be doomed. But God out of his infinite love, we, we haven't begun we haven't begun to scratch the surface of the capacity of God's love for us. And when you begin to radiate on that and begin to think about that, it really all finds its core in Jesus. That's why the person of Jesus is so incredibly important. That's why it's not like, well, what's the difference between Christianity and this religion and this religion? The difference is Jesus, man. 
Yeah, there might be some ethical things that are the same, like, you know, some, some moral codes that just make sense to live in the world. But the difference between us and everybody else is Jesus. And Jesus is everything. Because in Jesus is the love of God that surpasses understanding. And when you really realize what you've been saved from and who you were when God found you and how he regenerated you and brought you back to life when you were yet dead and undeserving, you will sit there and you can't help but go, God, really? And there's nothing, there's no response to God but love. And it's that love that begins to kind of reorder life for you and me. That's kind of how it works. So God loves me in spite of what I've done. So I live in this state of genuine gratitude. There's this amazing moment in the, in the, in the ministry of Jesus, and it talks about it in the book of John. He's kind of raising the stakes on everybody, right? And he's like, Okay, you have, because cra- huge crowds are following him. And I'm like, I don't, he's like, I don't really know that they're following me. They don't really understand what they're getting. So he kind of says, look, if you're going to follow me, you really need to be committed to me. You need to be committed to what I'm telling you. If you're not, and he kind of says this harsh thing, like if you're not willing to eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're like, it's game over. And they're, they're going, what? Like, and so a lot, of disi- a lot of the disciples, the followers, early followers of Jesus bailed on him because they're like, look, I mean, you know, I was kind of here for the free food, you know, the fish and the loaves and the magic show. You know, and I was like, I was, I was cool with that, but now you're talking about eating your flesh and all this stuff and willing to die. I'm like, it's, that's not what I'm here for. So they all leave, and then, then there's the disciples that are still hanging around, the 12 disciples, and Jesus says, what about you guys? Are you guys going to go too? And Peter says, where are we going to go? <laughs> where in the world are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. There's no one like you. So if we put all this together, it really starts at this core with the knowledge of God. So let me ask you, do you really know God? Or is he just the man upstairs? Is he just this kind of like vague force that, you've, that you, you have purposely kept vague so you can justify living how you want to live? Or it's like, wait a second, do I, am I, have, I have I really come to terms with the immense and, and, uh, really um, the unfathomable love of God for me. And when that happens, I can only respond by loving him. Like, God, I, I, I want to live my life exclusively for you. Why would I, there's nowhere else to go. Like Peter says, there's nowhere else to go. And then from there, what begins to happen is that that WWE match in your, in, your, in your heart, in your soul, begins to kind of be sorted out because all these other things just don't seem that great anymore. All these superstars become weaker and weaker and weaker in your life. You're like, really? That's not going to make me happy. That's not going to do anything. She's not going to, like, what can she do? And this car is going to get old and rotten and stupid, and this house is going to burn down someday or fall apart or whatever. It's like, why do I, why do I attach myself to these things as though they're as important as God? And as you begin to do that, your life begins to be under control and, and, and in such a way that you begin to kind of emanate something else. And it's really what the, the word that you could say more than anything else that you emanate is peace. And even more than just peace as we know it, but like the Hebrew concept of what's called shalom. Because shalom is more than peace. It's like rest. It's rest. It's that Sabbath day, the seventh day of creation, where your heart begins to be at rest because you're living your life in such a way that's ordered and exclusively geared towards 
the love that you have for God because of your knowledge of him, right? So as that begins to happen over time, is this not right away? You begin to kind of emanate peace, and you find that, there, that there's like peace that radiates out from you, and the life, the influence, the circle of influence that you have over time begins to be ordered. This is a big deal. It doesn't happen overnight. But one of the things we have to contend with is the wake we are leaving. And Dr. Henry Cloud talks about this in his book. It's called Integrity, and it's a fantastic book. He says, every one of us is like a boat out of Lake Pleasant, right? And you leave a wake. And what you do, you leave a wake. You leave something in, in, in your path. And what is that going to be? And it is absolutely tied to the decisions you make, which is tied to the condition of your heart, which is tied to your knowledge and love for God. That's all connected. So what does that look like over time? Well, last week, you guys know I'm in the Air Force Reserve and as a chaplain, and I did some annual tour time. In fact, I wrapped up my, I'm moving from March, uh, March Air Reserve Base in um, Moreno Valley out here to Luke, um, and so, and I'm in a different category, so I won't be doing the once a month drill anymore. I'll be doing a different category where I'll be working some with the active duty during the week from here and there, and it's kind of a smaller, reduced commitment. It's more flexibility for me here and that kind of thing. So I'm making that transition. It's kind of wrapped things up last week. And so I was out there, and one of the things I had the opportunity to do was a memorial service at Riverside National Cemetery. And I did this service for a guy who was 74 years old, passed away of a massive heart attack last month. He spent 39 years as a command chief master, well, not all of that time, but he retired as a command chief master sergeant um, out at this guard base out at Channel Islands. And so he passed away, and so we got a call, and so I'm talking to his widow. And as I'm talking to her, and we're kind of talking about the service and what's going to happen, he's getting military honors and all that stuff. And I notice she's got this, like, serenity in her voice. And she just, she's a, she's a joy to talk to. And she was speaking of him in these profound ways and how amazing he was. And yet he was such a normal guy. You know, he worked 39 years, you know, as, as, as this um, guardsman. And then he got a job for a few years afterwards and doing building safety for some court somewhere. Just like a normal guy, right? But she says, Tim, this guy loved me. And he loved me so well. I quoted a while ago this guy, Brian Loritz, who says, a husband's leadership is worn on his wife's countenance so true. If you see a woman who's just sullen and beaten down, look at the husband. But this woman was not like that. I mean, and she just said, I want everybody to know he loved Jesus. He was, in fact, he had a surgery a while back, and the nurse would come over, like, every day to give him some help with some things, and, like, she, they'd always be talking about Jesus, and he, he loved, and he, was, he loved people, and he loved Jesus, and she's talking about this. So then when I get to the service, I start meeting the family. I meet his daughters. His daughters come up, and they say, there's no one like our dad. No one like our dad. He's the best dad in the world. And then when the son-in-law comes up, one of the, one of the daughters, and he says, this man, he adopted me as his son. He mentored me. He loved me. And I miss him so much. And I'm seeing like this, like, who is this guy, you know? And then his granddaughter comes up. She's like early 20s. And she says, my grandpa was the best grandpa. She goes, there's all those grandpas that are no good. She goes, mine was the best. And she says, he used to call me his little fishing buddy. 
And he taught me how to cook. I wouldn't know how to cook, you know. And she's going, she says, please, because I was telling her I might talk about her in the service, please say he was my, that I was his fishing buddy. And I'm looking at this family who's had this tremendous loss, and yet there is this shalom. There is like this peace. And I'm looking at, this, at, at the field that this man tended over the decades of his life. And it was powerful. And that's what we're talking about, men and women. We are not interested in a snap decision. Raise my hand, I want to follow Jesus, yeah. And we count it, oh yeah, we got 200 people that like said they want to trust Jesus as their Savior. Isn't that great? And then we don't see you anymore. That's not, that's not really that impressive. Because I can get you all riled up about, you know, no, no, what we're looking for is over time, on a Thursday, on a Monday, on a Wednesday, my heart is committed to him. And I begin to order my life in such a way that it gives life to other people. And you build something beautiful. And the conflict in your life Yes, there will always be conflict. As long as we're human beings on this planet, there will always be conflict, but it's different. It's not, it's not like the conflict that James is talking about that comes from within us. It says at the end, he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Even though we're like these adulterous people, he gives more grace. And we'll talk about next week, we're gonna continue on with this about opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble and blah, blah, blah. Uplifting the humble. But I guess I want to end with this. Where are you at? Is there a time for some of us need to re-surrender? Well, I'm a Christian, but, you know, I'm, I'm committed to God, but yet there's been all these other voices. There's been a huge cage match inside your heart. Is it time to take today and say, you know, I'm done with that. I want to start living as though I actually know God and love God. I won't be perfect. Some of us, for the first time, need to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. And you think you're getting by just fine because you're so free. Well, I don't, I don't listen to anybody. Yeah, you do. You listen to, if you don't listen to God, you listen to everybody. When you believe in nothing, you'll fall for anything. And you do. So some of us need to say, you know what? I'm going to let God be God. I'm going to trust in his grace and his love. That's what I want to give us the opportunity to do right now. So go ahead and let's bow together. Bow your heads, close your eyes. Just you and God for just a minute. And our worship team is going to come out and lead us in a song. And as we're getting ready to do that, if you're here today and you're saying, you know what, God? As much as it's politically incorrect to say anything critical about, you know, how we live our lives, yeah, I guess I have been adulterous when it comes to you. Yeah, I guess I have had one eye on you and one eye on everything else out there that is catching my attention. And it's caused a riot inside my soul and it's ruining my relationships and it's straining everything around me and God, I don't want to be like that. So I'm telling you today, you have a rightful ownership of my heart. I'm giving it to you today. Here, take it. God, would you take my heart to make it yours. Thank you for loving me even though I am unlovable. 
Thank you for receiving me as a son or as a daughter, even when I'm at my worst. And God, may my life, may my life just look like I love no one else but you. Thanks for joining us today. Why not ask God to change your life so you can go and change your world for Him? To find out more about our church online, go to www.compasschurch.info and we'll see you next time.